This morning we're going to take some time to boast as Christians. It's not unusual for us to engage in things like this, but we don't think of it consciously like this very often. We're going to boast with abandon this morning to see what it feels like when we do this, to try it on and see if we can't do this with all our lives. I want you to know what biblical boasting is. Here's the definition of biblical boasting, to declare and celebrate where our confidence comes from. We praise the source of our joy and our victory. When we see this in sports, when somebody wins a game by virtue of a walk-off home run, come around the bases and they crowd around him at home plate and they lift him up on their shoulders and they do these obnoxious things, it's kind of bragging that he's the one who single-handedly defeated the, the opponent, opposing team. But biblical boasting is about reminding ourselves of where our confidence lies and declaring to the world where their confidence lies. We make clear to people where our hope really is. We gather here, we come here on a Sunday morning by invitation, request of God, and our, our, our very attendance here together is a boasting. And it's appropriate for us to do this because something, y'all, something amazing has happened in history, and we are beneficiaries of it, right? Something amazing, something profoundly significant happened one day in history, and because of that, our lives are forever changed. And it's totally appropriate for us to boast about it. So let me first of all describe what we don't boast about. This morning, we're not boasting about our good behavior or our good works or even our good morality. There's a lot of good people living here. You've done a lot of good things this week. We've seen it on Facebook, and some of them we haven't seen. This church from out of on this hill, from, out of this, from off this hill, has done some good works this week. But that's not where our confidence lies. You take all our good works together, and they're like filthy rags, really, when it comes to standing right before God. That's not where our boasting is. So we're not boasting about and having confidence in our works or our performance this week. Our boasting is not about our sound doctrine either. We're going to do the five acts of worship. We're going to be as faithful as we can to the pattern of Scripture. We're going to honor what God wants, and we want to be as close to right as we can be. But that, even if we get it perfect, is not the source of our confidence. And we're not going to boast about that today. We're not going to boast about our politics, our worship, the number of people who are in attendance here. If we could have 800 people, that doesn't make us more valid before God than the groups that meet today that have seven. That's not where our confidence is. That would be way too flimsy. Paul talks about this once in Galatians chapter 6. I want you to read the words with me from this verse up until you get to the first comma. Read it with me, would you? Out loud. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does Paul boast, church? Does he boast? Yes. Does he boast in himself? No, we're impressed with Paul. Paul's not impressed with Paul. God's not impressed with Paul that way. So if he boasts, what does he boast in? Look at the verse and answer the question. What does he boast in, church? The cross. The cross, that very humble event, that very humble circumstance and occasion, 
There's a reason why we boast and we talk about and have our confidence in this historic event that took place already. It's already taken place years and years ago, but we look back on it every single week. It's where victory over evil took place. God, through Christ, took on sin and he took on Satan head to head. This battle was prophesied and started way back right after creation. And that battle's been going on. But finally, the, the, the thing that was at stake here was God's plan and our eternal destiny. That was what was at stake in this, this battle that was taking place between God and evil that started right there in the garden. And it was also prophesied uh, uh, to be a battle there in the garden when the serpent would strike the son of the woman, the offspring of the woman, and the offspring of the woman would crush the snake or the serpent. There was a picture. Because of our sin, we were in trouble. We were in Satan's camp. That's whose side we were fighting for. Even if we wanted to fight for God, even if we saw the virtue of being on God's victorious side, we couldn't get there because we were enslaved by our sin, the sin that we chose to participate in. We were spiritually dead and we were powerless to do anything about it. So Jesus came into the human history, came into the human world, and he took on Satan himself. Satan's real arsenal of weapons is trying to get you to constantly disobey God, and he kept trying to do that with Jesus too. Right after his baptism, there he goes, trying to get Jesus derailed from God's purposes. But he never did. The one human being who was fully human, as God intended us to be, was a man named Jesus. Never sinned, never made a wrong decision, lived a flawless, sinless life. He fended off the lies of Satan, the way Satan tries to blind us, keep us enslaved to the fear of death. And he took him on most directly on the cross. And I want you to listen to the most graphic description of this from Colossians chapter 2. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. If you were ever spiritually dead, raise your hand. Just everybody raise your hand. That's what I mean. You raise your hand. We were all spiritually dead. Totally powerless to do anything about it. And when we were, notice what happened. God made us alive together with him. We who are Christians were made alive together with him, it says. And here's how he did it. Having forgiven us our trespasses. Those sins that kept us stuck in Satan's side, God forgave them. But he didn't just say, well, I'm going to act like they're not there. That's not what he did. Notice it goes on to describe in four ways what he did with them. He forgave us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt. This is a strange word only here in the New Testament. It's a handwritten document. We, call, we sometimes call it an IOU, but it's not an IOU. It's a you owe me. That's what this is. A document in God's handwriting. God is a meticulous record keeper, and every time you chose to do what you wanted rather than what God wanted, he wrote it down because you owe him. Every sin you committed was an offense against him, and he wrote it down. Every single white lie that you tell just not to hurt somebody else's feelings, he writes it down. Imagine how long this list was. It was a hand record, handwritten record of every offense you ever committed, and it's written there, and it was a problem because it was what Satan was going to use to accuse you. He's the accuser, and he wants to bring up before you all those times and keep you feeling shame and sin and separation. But here's what God did. 
Because Jesus didn't have a list, because Jesus didn't have a single thing on his list, he went to the cross empty-handed. No, he didn't. He went to the cross with your list. He went with your record, the things that you did. He took them with him, and he held it in his hands. And when that nail went through his hands, it went through your record and destroyed that thing. Everything that stood against you, he canceled that debt and its legal demands. Everything you owed and the, 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 the penalty you had to pay, he took it on the cross and he set it aside and he nailed it to the cross. Is that not good news, right? He took care of your sin right there that day. On that cross, it took that cross because it's what was the just payment. But notice, she's mad. Notice, that's supposed to be good news, but not for everybody. I guess so. Notice what happens next. Next screen. This is the next verse. By doing that with your sin, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Satan and all his minions who are trying to get you to yield to temptation and to accuse you before God all the time, legitimately with your sin, he no longer has armor against you. He no longer has an arsenal of what? Why? Because when he tries to pull out that record of debt and remind you of what you deserve and the death that you're stuck in and the sin that you've committed, when he tries to take that record out, he opens it up and lo and behold, it's empty. He's got nothing to accuse you of. Satan has lost his armor and his arsenal of weaponry against you because Jesus stripped him on the cross of all that Stuff He took care of Satan right then and right there. It's an amazing scene. And the next line goes, he put them to an open shame. He didn't do this quietly in a corner where there'd be a he says, she says. He did it openly. He shamed him. And the funny thing is, it sure looks like when you go through the cross, Jesus is shamed, doesn't it? There's the powerful politician saying, I've got power over you. And Jesus quietly, like a lamb, saying nothing. Looks weak, doesn't it? And then you see you got the king of the universe with a crown of thorns on his head and people bowing down at his feet, saying, you're the king, you're the king, in mockery. But they were actually telling the truth. But it sure looks like they had the power, didn't it? They used all the human violence and betrayal and all the, 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 poli the political system, and they worked it against him, and it made, it look, made Jesus seem to look small. Shamed him, didn't they? Well, it looks that way at first. Even on the cross, they said, come down from there and we'll believe in you. There's nothing to believe in if he comes down off the cross. He can't do that and be the son of God. Here's the thing. All the preaching Jesus did, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, do good in response to bad done to you. That was just words he preached, but on the cross, it was a life he lived. It was a response he made, and all the powers of humanity rose up against him and seemed to crush him, but that's not really what happened. Three days later, God raises him from the dead, and he triumphs over them in him. He turns the tables, and realize now, when you look at it, he shames the powers of the world and the ways of the world by modeling the ways of God in such a powerful way. Not everybody sees it that way. Some people still see it as Jesus lost and was crushed and for nothing. Even Paul originally thought it that way. First time you see Saul, 
He's holding clothing and encouraging those people to stone Stephen to death for believing this crazy story that the cross is the power of God. He is willing to kill to shut this story up. By the end of his life, he dies a humiliating death at the powers of the politicians because he's willing to die to promote the story. The difference is he now realizes the shame was not on Jesus, it was on the sinful world and the principalities and powers. Do you see it that way? Which view do you adopt? That's the way of the cross. Satan no longer has power over you. Your sins don't stick. Your sins don't separate you from God. Sin doesn't sabotage your walk with God because Jesus made it right. He gained us the victory. And right before he describes what Jesus did, he tells us how we get into that. Colossians 2, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. All those things Jesus did to sin and Satan, you receive when you are in Christ, when you join him in his death, burial, and resurrection by your own in the waters of baptism. Those of you who've been baptized, those benefits are all yours. Sin no longer is against you. Satan has no power over over you you have won because Jesus did and you see winners boast winners boast but we don't boast in us because that was given to us we boast in a Jesus who did it for us we boast in him how how do you boast well, in a moment, you're gonna, we're going to participate in it just like we do every Sunday, but I want you to pay particular attention this time. We're going to be boasting in our singing. Victory, yes, it's ours, but it's through whom? Victory in Jesus. We're going to be singing victory in Jesus. I want you to sing it like you're boasting because we're not only reminding ourselves, church, that it's in Jesus that our hope is, but we're telling the world it's not about us and our right teaching and our right behavior. It's about a Savior who we are gathered around the table to serve. That's the, when we sing, it's like we're lifting Jesus up on our shoulders and we're parading him before a watching world. We're boasting. But there's another thing, too. We're going to gather around this table and reenact the story. Every Lord's Day, we gather around this table and we proclaim the Lord's what? Once you get this right, it's not his resurrection. We know he rose three days later, but what he tells us, what he tells us is that I want you to proclaim the Lord's death. Every time you gather, I want you to have a mini funeral. Every time you get to get, now isn't that weird for us to continue remembering the death of our Lord? But that's exactly what we're commanded to do because that's where our boasting lies. That's where the, the victory scene took place and you can never forget that. If you ever forget that, you'll start taking credit for yourself and you don't need to do that. The only credit we have is Jesus. And so we're going to gather around and we're going to involve all our senses in celebrating this. That's, that's boasting. It's a powerful proclamation. There's, we're responding in generosity. Before this service is over, you're going to be able to, to contribute to the church. And the idea is you give to God so that I think probably most of us are so busy, you don't, you don't think about how can I support those causes to get this message and boast it out around the world. Maybe you don't know how, but the church and the elders here know how to do that. And you want to do that, you get a chance to give and 
reflect, and, and what you're doing when you give is you're boasting about a God who can do that. And finally, one last thing. When you leave the building and you go out those doors and you enter the world, you imitate the cross in your life. It has a claim on you. It has a claim. When you leave here, you live a different life than most people in the world. It is cross-shaped life. Now, a couple examples. It covers everything in your life, but here's a couple of examples. Number one, you love your enemies. People are going to treat you wrong, and in our world, you're going to be mistreated because of your Christian faith. And you're going to lash out or get justice for every wrong. No, 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 you don't do that. You, you love your enemies because that's what the cross showed us. And we believe he disarmed the powers that way. We're going to disarm the powers that way too. So we're going to imitate the cross. But there's also a cross-state marriage. We don't live people of the world. We, we live in our marriages like Ephesians 5 where, where wives submit to their husbands. But husbands, do you know who you model your participation in marriage after? Christ and the church. And what was he willing to do for the church? Sacrifice and even die on behalf of the church. When we live like that in our marriages, we have a cross-shaped marriage. That's imitating the cross. So we're going to boast. This morning we're going to boast. We're going to sing together about the source of our confidence and our joy. Let's remember his death as a means of experiencing again the moment of our victory purchased by Jesus.